The year is 1991. I'm Dave. I'm Zach. And this is My Marvelous Year. My Marvel This Year, the podcast where we go through the history of Marvel Comics from its origins to today. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to 1991 Part 7. This is the final part of our coverage of Marvel Comics mm-hmm. that came out in 1991. Before we move on to 1992, another massive year i think that one's going to be a seven parter as well the parters the parters are growing you know who else is growing he's very tall it's zach dean how's it going zach really worked myself into a a clean transition and introduction there i do i do get all worked up uh whenever we we start these episodes just hearing the dulcet sounds of those that your voice um so you're interpreting uh growing like a filthy pervert is what you're telling me no, no, my, you know, I go six one, six two, six three. You, you just won't stop every time I uh, hear Dave's voice. Mm, so. mm. Just yeah. the the inches keep on a coming. Yeah, no, it's true. Zach is very tall. Um, <laughs> yeah. What he, good, what he, good sentences lacks in. Um, well, I don't know. I don't. I don't mm-hmm. want to describe what you lack, but you make it up in height. Whatever it is you, that you lack. You make it up in substantial height. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's half true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some truth to that. Uh, but yeah, no. Zach and I are going through the history of Marvel Comics, 1991, Part One, and of course today is going to be Part Seven. So we're going to talk about the final 1991 comics. Now, the majority of these were uh, added late in the game, right? These were not original mm-hmm. 1991 My Marvelous Year list. Uh, cur- you know, it's a curated selection of comics that I've gone through and I pour over these and figure out, okay, what are the essential comics we need to read? Literally everything on the list today is new for this, this iteration. So this was not in the reading club the first time. And not only are the comics new, newly selected, but one was recommended via Patreon backer Johannes K. Um, so thank you so much for the support for uh, one of the Patreon tiers that we have right now. You can support the site. It's the only way you can support the site over at patreon.com slash year. Thanks to everybody who's done so. But one of the tiers, you can actually add a comic to the list. Mm -hmm. You can add it to the My Marvelous Mm -hmm. Year list, not just for Zach and I, okay? This isn't just for us. You add it for everyone. You You can dictate what everyone will be reading when they get to 1991 Part 7 in this instance. And Johannes knocked it out of the park. Johannes uh, saved us, frankly. For, saved me for myself. Yeah. It, it is it is a fun way of like that. The the backers sometimes are like, "Hey, you're you're kind of missing something, right? Like this is this is something you should be reading." Like, I don't know. Force number one. I don't you know, know that like, anyone has hit it harder than this one. Honestly, like yeah, we've, I, we've I had agree. some selections, yeah. and generally, I've been happy to read the comics. I think there's only been that John Byrne Hulk one. <laughs> I was yeah, I yeah, was yeah. not actually better for. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, yeah. interesting Justin. creatively, yeah. but I actually thought the comic <laughs> stunk. And uh I, I agree as a John Byrne guy. Yeah, I agree. Right, I agree. no, you're as big you have you're wearing your JB 
biggest fan shirt right now, um, mm-hmm. which could be misinterpreted to be like uh, JB who hosts like the NFL pregame stuff historically. You know, like there's there's probably other JBs. I mean, J- Justin Bieber obviously would be a huge one. Um, there's yeah. got to be other JBs that that could be misattributed to. But you're, we know, knowing you, that it's John Byrne. Um, but yeah, no, not so to call out that one. <laughs> Call out that one generous donation uh, because it was a comic I didn't like. But generally, I'm happy to read them. But I've never been happier to have read and to have a comic included in the club. I'll just let's just yeah. let's just get to it. It's Marvel Superheroes number eight, the first appearance of Squirrel Girl. Okay, so we're talking about that today. We're going to talk about Daredevil 288 to 291, the end of the Anna Santi run, Deathlock. We're going to return to the McDuffie Dennis Cowan run we're going to do issues two to five and then we're going to talk about the avengers death trap the vault the original graphic novel um zach i have some answers prepared for questions i anticipate you will be asking when we get to those comics <laughs> okay great all right yeah, I've, got, I've got a question all right uh what do we what else so it's it, this is being recorded um in june so it'll probably be released after june if uh if my math adds up, I don't actually have the calendar in front of me. But regardless, uh, definitely thank you to everybody who supports us. You can support the site over at patreon.com slash year or by rating and reviewing on iTunes. Um, that is that this is what we like to see. coming out, yeah, mid-July. So our, our the charity giveaway, charity giveaway, charity record a thing is over by now. But I'm sure some people have backed at this point. So we're back, donated money, and... I'm going to record an episode, so uh, thanks a lot to anyone who did that. And you know, probably by the time this episode comes out, I will probably have been thrice a dad. I will probably Once, be twice the tri-father. Three times a daddy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the tri-father will be on my resume, um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm excited to get this upgrade. I'm excited to add it to the resume. Uh, that That's the thing that non-parents really can't understand, is how... It really fleshes out the CV. It really, <laughs> like, you know, you're, you just have a few lines and it looks awkward and you're like, I don't know, proficiency in Excel. You get that tri-father status, boom. You don't have to, you don't have to make stuff up. It's great. Yeah. Um, so looking forward to that for sure. But speaking of things we're looking forward to, let's get into these comic books. And let's start with Daredevil 288 to 291. Zach, it's the end of the Anna Santi run. I know. Officially. I know. These comics are awesome. They just, they just rule. It pains me that they weren't <laughs> in Marvel Unlimited for like <laughs> for years. You know, like it just pains They're me. So good. It's like, what are you yeah. doing? What were you doing? Um, yeah, these are great. And I, I think if you've been reading along with, and you know, we're not reading every issue in this run, obviously, like again, curated list. Um, but if you've read the the parts of the Nascentia run that we've done in the club to this point, I think everything kind of makes sense, honestly. Um, you know, the Kingpin is the ultimate antagonist but he's very much in the background you have lee weeks doing uh pencils and some inks on this yeah, good, which good stuff lee weeks an artist i was not familiar with until somewhat recently like in the in the 2010s um doing some mm-hmm. batman stuff with tom king okay and it always kind of fascinates me i think especially as we move into the 90s this becomes increasingly true where it'll be like all these top tier creators and it'll be like oh they were like they were just chugging along at marvel 30 years ago like just like the yeah. amount of yeah of hours and reps guys have put in. Um, Cause I, I, these Lee weeks comics are fine, but I didn't read them and think like, Oh yeah, that's the guy who drew um, the Elmer Fudd issue with Tom King. That is like a knockout stunner. That's him. Really? <laughs> I love that issue. Yeah. That yeah. I, I'm pretty sure. That's I mean, Lee but weeks. on the other side of that, you kind of get people who like chug along doing good work, you know, like really nice art or some solid, you know, solid writing. And then they just kind of, 
fizzle out and disappear and you're like, who is this person? You look them up and it's like, yeah, they worked for Marvel for eight years and haven't done a comic in, you know, a decade. For sure. And that's, you get that that's in definitely... the ultimate, ultimate universe a lot. Oh, that's interesting. See, I would think actually as we... As we get into like 93 to 96, you know, kind of the the Marvel having problems years, um, there's yeah. so many names where it's like, it's like, what, who? <laughs> like, well, like, and I they're mean, just, yeah, they're the... just people who were in, you know, it's kind of an interesting, you know, career where they're like, yeah, I worked in comics for three years during Marvel's worst time period. Yeah, and, right, uh, right. and nobody talks about them since, but, but we'll, well, we'll I get was, there. I was looking up who, who took over writing Daredevil right after Andesenti, someone named D.G. Chichis. Chichester? You know, with the Chichester? exception, with one exception that has been made recently, mm. I'm I'm glad we're not going to read a lot of that run because you and I would be botching the Chichesters. <laughs> Chichester? I'm sorry, Too many Daniel, times. Apologies. Yeah, like, Apologies for the run we're probably not going to discuss in any depth because uh, it doesn't someone have a good who reputation. Just, uh, someone, yeah, someone who like did Daredevil for quite a while and then dropped out of comics in 1999 and hasn't gone back. Um yeah, yeah, and just uh, and just went to went into advertising. So yeah, well, tell yeah, us more about stuff. that. I want to know yeah, let's not what kind of advertiser the, the the <laughs> Yeah, he works for Ogilvy now in Connecticut. No way! Uh, wow, yeah, what crazy. a career path. See the things you learn. Uh, yeah, these Daredevil right, comics. Yeah, let's talk about. They're great. Um, yeah. As we enter this run, okay, and and I mentioned Lee Weeks. You know, we alternate here with Kieran Dwyer on pencils. It kind of Again, goes back just and forth. Incredible. Um, basically, the so the good. premise. Of this of these comics is Matt is as per usual beaten up and recovering. Okay, standard yeah. Matt Murdock status. And Bullseye is out on the loose. The Kingpin's hiring him to do some dirty work, but Bullseye's putting on a Daredevil costume in an effort to sabotage and tarnish Daredevil's good name. Okay, and Bullseye is wearing a Daredevil costume and then going out and just wreaking havoc, essentially, like beating up like homeless people. Um, just like, you know, attacking the elderly, uh, at one point a mob, you know, has turned on him because they've, the, the bugle has been jumping on the fact that he's a villain and people are aware of this and whatnot. And a mob throws a tomato at him. He catches it and then throws it back an apple. He he, catches it and then throws it it. back at an elderly man (laughs) and presumably kills him. Like it is a bite out of the apple. And then just like that shot is like the, the comedy of that. Yeah. It's a horrible thing, but it's very guy's forehead. Yeah. Well, the the whole thing with Bullseye is like kind of funny because he's you know he's just like I'm gonna out here I'm gonna destroy the reputation of my worst enemy and then he'll like he beats up a guy and he's just like I'm taking your twelve dollars for beer and that's all he does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, no, like, he has no greater aim other than besmirching Daredevil. Like there's there's nothing yeah, more to like, it. At the end, he he gets kind of confused and he starts like acting like Daredevil. Like he's like, what? A, it's easy to be bad, but. Maybe the harder thing is to be good, and he, like, saves someone from a mugger, but then he kills the mugger. And that's the worst thing he does. Besides that, he's mostly just going around like, yeah, I'm going to steal your $15. I'm going to trip an old lady. Like, it's all pretty... Like, Bullseye the Teen Prankster is actually, like, very, very (laughs) kind of funny and entertaining. Um, At the end of this, and we'll just kind of skip to the the Bullseye Daredevil part of it. So Daredevil kind of gets his mojo back, and um, there's a whole thing where he's, like, he's literally reliving his dad's boxing days like at, there's a whole thing here where he's the blind boxer he wears his you know netflix style you know blindfold over his eyes he's a boxer like they try to pay him off to die take a dive in a fight and he won't do it like he literally imagines himself in the stands like his dad would have seen 
and he wins the fight. It's, it's like not his, that he's just taking his name. He he thinks he is Jack Murdoch fully. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Oh, yeah. He is, no, he's, when I say he's, he's literally him, yeah. reliving his dad, like, he's he's fully okay. I yeah, am he, Jack Murdoch. He does Murdoch. not know who Matt is. <laughs> yeah. And, um, which, uh, yeah, so that's happening. But then, like, basically after getting out of this fight, he, like, okay, he's, like, okay, I remember who I am. I'm Daredevil. His plan, then, to get back at Bullseye is to wear a Bullseye costume and trick <laughs> Bullseye running around in the Daredevil costume into basically fighting himself. So we get Daredevil in the Bullseye costume. We get Bullseye in the Daredevil costume. I don't know. I, I might have just said the same thing twice. I don't even know. My head's it's, spinning. But it's awesome. Yeah. It's it's a hilariously <laughs> goofy premise, yeah. but it's played so straight. And it's like it's played like a farce because Bullseye, it's played like a, like a Looney Tunes gag, you know, where it's like sure. it, it's very much Bugs Bunny telling elmer fudd like oh you know like rabbit season like no actually it's duck season you know that sort of thing <laughs> yeah and and bullseye well, starts buying into it well because bullseye at that point is already starting to be like oh, i'm spending too much time in this daredevil costume like am i a good guy now like he's already you know like his, his mind is a little splintered and mm-hmm. fragile and then daredevil in the bullseye costume is like threatening to kill him and then bullseye is confused in just being like wait a second you you don't have you wouldn't kill me when you had that you had a gun against my head and you didn't kill me like thinking about the reverse situation back in the Miller run right <laughs> right when it was the and then he's just like well either he's a coward or he's a bleeding heart what you know if he's daredevil and he doesn't actually kill anyone so mm-hmm. either way I'm safe right like he's confused to the point where he can't remember if he's fighting daredevil in a bullseye costume or just bullseye and he's daredevil yeah um it's yeah it's really good all all the action here is excellent. Like between this, the action fight, uh, the action scene after the boxing match, where Daredevil's taking down a bunch of um, the like henchmen who have his friend Nyla's skin. Can we talk about Nyla for just a second? Sure. She's not a big deal here. She's she's like the secondary character that um, that is like helping Matt Murdock recover and is clearly in love with him. And she's in like six issues here. Right? I think not even five issues of the Daredevil run. Do you know what else she's in? I no, I honestly this was my introduction to to her character. So she's in these issues, five issues of Nascenti's Daredevil run, mm-hmm. and then she's coming back or she came back in the 2020 Conan Battle for the Serpent Crown by Saladin Ahmed. Checks out. And she's a re- she's a regular <laughs> character in that. It's the the featured characters are Conan and supporting character Nyla Skin is the second character. Amazing. What so a like, pull. What a pull. Yeah, isn't that weird? Yeah. That's um, comics. Anyway, Oh, well, and that leads to, she's the black woman, to the, like, ridiculous moment where Matt is, like, pretending when he's Jack Murdoch to be, like, colorblind, <laughs> more or less, right? He's just like, yeah, sometimes I have trouble seeing stuff, and I'm a little colorblind to cover for the fact that he's actually blind. And she's like, do you know what color I am? And he, like, gives the literal, like, Stephen Colbert, like, no, I can't tell people's color. doesn't matter to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> pretty cool. But it's, but it's true. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> except case. that is literally true, that he's just yeah. like, yeah, I know who, I, I can see you, but I just literally have no color. I You're do right. know what color you are. Right, for sure. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I do think, too, like, Matt wearing the blindfold in boxing, you know, this is a thing that comes up a lot, but, like, so, like, Ben Urich, he comes up in these issues, and he's like, you know, I had Matt's identity and the fact that he was Daredevil when I sat on the story, and obviously we saw that play on the Miller run, but it's like, yeah, but then you have matt fighting blind winning fights in full view like publicized (laughs) like lots of people watching he literally jumps out of the ring here like a vigilante acrobat i'm just saying matt's identity should have been spilled some time ago he is not (laughs) he is not careful about it here 
it's probably not an accident that his is one of the most like widely like half the the you know secondary characters in the daredevil comic know who he is yeah (laughs) right like know his identity and obviously like it's a big deal when kingpin gets it from karen page but so speaking of kingpin here i i really like the way nisenti utilizes his character in these issues where he is very much in the backdrop when daredevil like busts into his place kingpin's always just like sitting at his desk kind of waiting for him kind of just doing his own thing they don't fight they, there's never violence. He's always just like, oh, there's your hostage on the couch. Go ahead and take her. You know, like there's just this, there's this like business-like and it's it's intentional mm-hmm. because this is very much leaning into Kingpin as a clean, quote unquote, businessman. Trying to, He's literally trying to buy the reputation of old money, of wealth. And this is something that actually that, creators yeah. today are very much like, like I'll just say like in the Chips Zdarsky run, like you can so see the influence of yeah. what Nesenti's doing here with the character. Um, and, and the one thing I really like about, you know, so Kingpin's trying to purchase, you know, wealth. He's trying to purchase status in a way that, the, you know, the one thing he lacks is like he can have all the money and he can run all the crime, but he doesn't have a legacy of a family that had money. <laughs> you know what I mean? He doesn't have do whatever yeah. I want money necessarily. We, we, this made me realize we don't really know what his background is. Yeah. But I, I love the idea, like here... It's made really clear that, like, he does not come from money. Yeah. Right? Like, and he doesn't come from money. He's not some, like, blue blood family. Because there's this... Gr- and this is such a good detail that I'm, I'm almost surprised we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. He's at a meeting with a bunch of advisors, and they're all, like, giving him advice on, you know, how to improve his image. And one of them uses... I can't remember. He uses a couple Latin phrases. Yeah. And everybody else in the room gets real quiet because they know Kingpin won't understand what they, that means. And because he doesn't understand, he's going to have to, like, prove himself, you know, like, still superior. So he just walks over and does the uh, an incredible four panels of him walking up behind the guy, putting his hands around his head, crushing his head off panel, and then just, like, the man's corpse and uh, head laying on the table with a, a pile of, a uh, pile, a pool of blood coming out with everybody else um, just watching. What's going on? Is there a bird loose in your office? <laughs> no, I just wanted to open the vent. So the the other thing I really like about Kingpin is yeah. in his in his you know effort to solidify you know the fact that he's a upright businessman, um, he's also buying news here. So like Nesenti is very nudes. He's buying he's buying. Well, I think Kingpin always has nudes. I mean, don't you think? <laughs> like he's. I mean, he's his game is always blackmail and leverage. Like who who among us has not held back a story we were going to tell? Because we got a we got a nasty text <laughs> because with, the crime with some boss nudes. Got a hold of our nudes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, he's point, got he's got most of my nudes, and some were solicited, some were not, some were stolen. So you know, it's just how it goes sometimes. <laughs> Be careful with your nudes. I think is you know a lesson we do like to impart here. Um, but also, he's trying to buy news. Like he's he's very much taking over the information that people convey, um, and that to me feels like Nesenti being pretty on the ball, pretty ahead of the curve in a lot of ways about the influence of media essentially on you know on like people's mindsets and and what they believe and you know like the fact that Wilson Fisk you know not just for himself but just for the way he wants them to view the world essentially and to continue making money um it's a it's a good touch i don't i don't know that we've seen it referenced so specifically to this point yeah yeah i really i really like all that with um with kingpin and it feels it's interesting cuz this does not feel like the wrap up of a 
a series to me or a run. Right? Yeah. Like this does not feel it necessarily not. like, oh, she's done. And like, this is kind of her putting a pin on Like this feels like she's still got stuff to do. Well, and like 291 you know, like, in particular for being the final issue just feels like a, like a holding pattern issue. You know, it feels just yeah, like a stopgap. Totally, yeah. um, I mean, if it had ended the issue the before, final. that would have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't exactly. know. It's a bit like, yeah. I mean, it's not the same thing, but it's a bit like Claremont where it's like, mm-hmm. we are, we're just at that point in Marvel where all these names that we've been mentioning for years and years, Simonson, Nesenti, Claremont, they're done. Like, they're done for yeah. now. <laughs> and I think some of that, like, I don't, I don't, you know, it'd be interesting if we had interviewed Nesenti now instead of, when we did, but like how much of that was pressure? How much? I mean, when I think when we talked to her, she was kind of just like, "I was done. Like I'm, I'm good." You know, she definitely yeah. seemed to have yeah, yeah. more of that attitude. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a, a turnover I mean, period. She's gonna, she's gonna keep writing stuff for Marvel on and off. But I think this is like before she starts moving on to, to other stuff. She goes and works for Vertigo for a while. Yeah, the the following year, I think. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, it just like. It's an underrated this Daredevil one, run. This, We've said it a million it, times. It's so underrated. I know. It, it's, like, boring at this point. But, like, I mean, I, w- I would buy a collection of this, like, a big omni of this in a heartbeat. It's 50 issues. There's plenty here to, like, put out a big thing. And it's it's it doesn't quite hit Miller for me, but it's it's really close. Like, it's very close for me, like, with the Miller run. Like I Really? I think she's doing so much. Yeah, yeah. Like I like it a lot. I don't... It's not that close. I mean, that's... It, it's that's, close... I mean, it's also because it's good collaborators. Like, Kieran Dwyer and John Romita Jr.'s art here all really worked with it. If the art was not, like, up to snuff and it was just, like, really good writing from her, then no. But, like, all the all these issues look great. And This I, is I really definitely... Like the, uh, if John Romita Jr. gets a lot of attention just for being, you know, a creator who's done it forever and his dad was one of the, you know, found, like, not founders, but one of the most important Marvel creators, you know, on Spider-Man in, in the mid-60s and, like... Mm-hmm. I like his Daredevil more than I like I think anything else he's done. Um, I kind of like him on X Men yeah. in this period. I definitely like earlier John Romita Jr. than I do modern stuff. But uh, but yeah, I mean I think his Daredevil I actually think is like kind of his best fit. Like all the stuff with demons, just the general tenor of Daredevil and setting setting up Matt, you know, specifically like as a citizen of New York, <laughs> you know, in a way that like not just like the protector of Hell's Kitchen, but like as a real person who lives there and, and deals with actual people. Um yeah, no, yeah. it's a super underrated run and and well worth revisiting for for folks who maybe haven't spent as much time with it, which is I mean, honestly, even a lot of Daredevil fans because this is I this nev- is the good I, run I, I, that gets not talked about, <laughs> you know. People people I, I see online people talking about like their favorite Daredevil runs and I always, like, have to throw this in there, and people are like, oh, yeah, like, either I haven't checked that out, or I just kind of forgot it existed, but it's... There's there's a resurgent, there's a, definitely a critical acclaim to it, you know, there's, like, a fan-favorite critical acclaim, I think, that yeah. that is resurging right now. Um, I, I hope so. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think otherwise, yeah, historically it has not been... I, I think... I think the thing for me that she, like, really dials into that I appreciate, because she does a lot of stuff here, she brings a lot of, like, different themes and reoccurring, like, interest to this series is she really gets into the mental health of... Like, Frank Miller kind of does the thing of, like, well, you'd have to be crazy to wear one of these suits, right? Like, mm-hmm. you have to be a little crazy to do that. And she takes that just so much farther and says, like, yeah, no, they're all, like, uh, pretty crazy, <laughs> right? Like, let, let me, like, really amp that up and just be like, no, this is... They're all a little mentally ill. Like, everyone here is mentally fragile, and, like, you can't do this without, you know, being, uh, you know, be, like, ha- having some some problems that you know that are being worked out through being a superhero or right. a supervillain or whatever right and just really really like humanizes them through that you know while also taking it into just like it's it's not just this very small interior thing she'll do 
stuff like, you know, like dealing with Daredevil's Dark Knight of the Soul, but at the same time, he's fighting a demon train. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's incredible stuff. And what blows me away is that, like, especially just talking to her, it doesn't seem like comic books were just, like, the thing that she was, like, obsessed with. And, you know, she stumbled into this job, right? Like, she got this job, she wanted to get into marketing, and then she got this job, and she slowly started working in comics. And she just, it's so effortless, the way that she writes these. Like, they are not, they just move, they are paced so well that, that you know, like, that you just feel so carried along by someone who's, like, in total control. And that's so impressive for someone who was seemingly not, you know, like, necessarily a student of comics. I mean, she um, says that, so. and it's true when she starts, but by the time she starts Daredevil, she'd been editing Chris Claremont and X-Men for a number of years. Like, she's pretty she's pretty comics at that point. <laughs> like, yeah, she's pretty you know, immersed that's, in the world. That's true. It's still, you know, like, a lot of people who really like comics and work in them still don't quite have a, a head for what makes a comic, you know, read well, right? Like, it, it's tough to, to transition from that, I think. I think that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying, like, she's some, you know like savant or you know like some uh not savant um that she's some you know like she just stumbled in and was lucked out on this i, I just think it, it's very impressive how uh how much she she transitioned into this and how incredible this this run is eh. <laughs> <laughs> no it's very good it's well worth reading yeah. before we go any further time for an ad break if you're listening to this podcast you clearly love comics you may even love deep analytical takes on comics so we think you might like Super Serious 616. Super Serious 616 is a podcast that explores what it would be like to live through the beginning of the modern Marvel age of comics. It is unlike any podcast that you have heard before. Mike and Ed talk about the public events from the early Silver Age of Marvel Comics as if those events were actually happening. As superpowered heroes and villains, gods, and monsters become everyday occurrences, Mike and Ed talk about the ramifications of the changes thrust upon the world. Would the Fantastic Four be welcomed as costumed do-gooders, or would their motives be questioned? Will there be super-powered Cold War with Russia? Will the appearance of Thor in the emergence of gods from ancient myths lead people to re-examine their own religious beliefs? Is Iron Man a good use of Stark Core shareholder capital? If Reed Richards had developed podcast technology in the 1960s Marvel Universe, this would be the show everyone would be listening to. So join Mike and Ed every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Super Serious 616 as they chart the evolution of the Marvel Universe from the ground up as it happens. All right, back to the show. So, all right, next on the list, we have Deathlock number two to number five. This is yeah. The Souls of Cyberfolk. This is by Dwayne McDuffie, Dennis Cowan, and uh, who do we got here? Mike Manley on inks, Gregory Wright on Colors Ken Lopez lettered these The Souls of Cyberfolk and this is something I teased a little bit when we talked with Ashley from Bookish Realm about the original Deathlock mini that actually like not the original but the um the reintroduction by McDuffie yeah. where Michael Collins becomes our new Deathlock there's this prestige format introduction that we covered in 1990 and we all kind of talked about and, and maybe there's different you know, like, uh, maybe I'm forgetting some, you know, how responses to this. But my response was kind of like, there's a really good idea here. This story itself is actually much too long. Souls of Cyberfolk is, for me, where it gets very, very good. Like, these four issues, I think, are tight. They tell a good story. It's a really fun Marvel Universe concept, you know? So it's not only McDuffie and Cowan doing, really digging into, like, Michael Collins' transition as this killing machine you know that he's mm -hmm. been built into as a pacifist but it's also exploring like hey what about all of the 
artificially, you know, um, augmented people in the Marvel Universe. So we get a really fun gathering here of, like, Forge and Ultron and Machine Man and just these different types of characters. The premise for Souls of Cyberfolk is there's a rogue Doombot, basically, Mecha Doom, okay, which mm-hmm. is very 1990, and I love it. Um, and Mecha Doom is gathering all of the... Um, you know, AI tinged all these cybernetic Marvel heroes into one space, right? And and it has some Doom, at, like evolved beyond Doom kind of plotting for these individuals, and it's up to Deathlock, and then a whole who's who of cameos to come in and stop Mecha Doom. Um, these are good. Uh, these are strong. Like, I don't, I've never been a huge Deathlock fan. I'm an increasingly a fan of McDuffie. I really like Dennis Cowan stuff here more than I have in other stuff we've seen of his throughout yeah. Marvel Comics. I think his style is, it's got a touch of Sienkiewicz, and, and they work together in like modern comics in a way that I find interesting, where it's hmm. it's scratchier, and it's not as neatly defined as sort of that house, you know, like just like good, clean Marvel Comics. Like he's got personality injected into it, yeah. and I enjoy yeah. that. And I, I probably more than anything, I enjoy McDuffie weaving in you know philosophy weaving in wd du bois um and and just talking about like basically the clear metaphor between what these tech folk are going through and then what actual marginalized perspective minorities go through in reality right it's a it's a metaphor that falls apart if you really want to you know say it's an exact metaphor (laughs) but that's not the intent right it's a is intended as a metaphor i i actually okay so i i appreciate someone who clearly is like interested in you know, like, who reads <laughs> and just tries to bring that into his comics, tries mm-hmm. to elevate what is otherwise, you know, kind of like a juvenile exercise. Like, I don't mean that too pejoratively, but, like, trying to elevate stuff like it could, this. It could be purely escapist if it's a bunch of robots fighting a mecha doom, right? That is yeah, an escapist right. level of fantasy. Absolutely. I appreciate that. I didn't, I, I felt like it was so compartmentalized here where it was like, here's a conversation where he quotes W.E. Du Bois at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then we don't talk about that again until the last page where he brings it up again. <laughs> and like, for me, I was not fe- like that metaphor. I was pretty like cloudy on what he was actually trying to say. Um, because I don't think, you know, it, it felt didactic in that he was just like having the character speak it out loud. And then it didn't really play into the Mecha Doom plot, except for like, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, Mecha Doom trying to, to feel like his own person. I, I Like, m- maybe there is something here. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm just too dumb to see it. Yeah, uh, that's it. But I... <laughs> there's... Yeah, I just... There's plenty well, I don't here. know. Can, can, I, it's not can, like... Can, I mean, it's not like I mean, leaning heavily it? Tell, tell, into... Tell me, tell me what, like, feeling like, you know, a, a person being pulled between two bodies. You know, when, what he's talking about... Well, he's talking about double um, consciousness is what he's talking about with, with, you know, the the quotes that he's using here. And and the souls of cyber folk is a play on the souls of black folk. Okay, that's that's very intentional, right? Yeah, well, it's not intentional. I mean, it is intentional. He literally says that. Like, he says he's quoting the souls of black folk here. Yeah, so, like, I was smart enough to pick up that, like, probably there were some ties between those two things. Well, Um, you you noticed it the last time without, you know, him needing to actually... Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's relevant. It's it's important. Um, I, I think, to your point, like, no, it's not, like, every iota of... That's what I'm saying, is, like, there's this blend of high-minded thinking and reflecting on difficult concepts and, and complex concepts. Double consciousness is something that I think, you know, you need to read the works and, and listen to people and, and listen to perspectives to understand it. Um, Mecha Doom is not <laughs> talking about that. That is that blend of mostly this is Marvel Universe shenanigans. 
you know? Like, mostly that's what the comic is. And then it's sort of slyly layering in some some more difficult philosophical themes. I think, like, it's it's less about Mechadoom and it's more about Michael Collins. I mean, it's more about yeah, his sure. double consciousness yeah. of the literal extrapolation of that in the Marvel metaphor of pacifist African-American inside the body of Cyborg Killer. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. a yeah. split there of, like, who is in charge and who's in control. And then you can also apply that to, like, is it the machine or the man, you know, kind of stuff going on with Mechadoom? Does he have humanity? Uh, what is Forge's humanity? Have You know, what is Misty Knight's? And all these different questions. And I think there's probably really good critical thinking that can go into this that is definitely beyond my pay grade. Um, but I don't know. It's not... I, I didn't expect this to really... There's a version of this that probably leans more heavily into making it very, very clear what the mm-hmm. metaphor is. <clears throat> this is not that version. Um, but the, I like yeah, that I, it's included at all because it like what yeah, what Marvel yeah, comic yeah. has quoted from that text to this point. Sure, I don't yeah. mind that. Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally I totally appreciate like again, like I'm I'm very happy that someone's trying to do that. I, I just don't think it's that successful. Like I, I don't. I, I think I think if you did, you know, a, a really deep dive and tried to like parse out that kind of stuff, you would be meeting this comic well more than halfway <laughs> in like no, it's in extending it it's extending the opportunity to do that though by introducing the text and the quotes i mean it's not it's not like an accident i mean it's clear it's very much a part of the story yeah that doesn't mean it's successful right like just because it's trying does not mean successful like, at what though I, you're you're prescribing well it's the same what, way of what are the goals like, that you X-Men think are it a metaphor for marginalized people and it's like yeah but when uh, when is it actually saying anything about that and when are you looking at that and putting more of yourself in it than is actually on the page, right? Like, I, I think, you know, there, there is a layer, a part part where you can look at something critically and say, like, yeah, this isn't actually saying that much. It's trying to, or, you know, it's attempting to make a pass at that. And it's, But that's also your interpretation. I mean, uh, that's, other that's people true. are I mean, going I'm, I'm to not, interpret metaphors well, you, substantially you, you, more different. You're arguing that some hypothetical third party here might have something better to say about this? Like, that's fine. If, if that person told me, like, no, look, listen... This is pretty clear through this and this, like Mecha Doom is, you know, like, this is why this metaphor works, I'd listen to that, but I, I didn't feel that, and you don't seem to have, you know, like, I don't know, much, like, evidence for it. Evidence for what? I That's what I'm questioning. Like, what do you, what is your criteria for success? <laughs> like, it's L- Like a, it's a metaphor that, that I, I mean, what you, I feel like you're just saying, like, well, it tried, so that means it works. No. Okay, well, I mean, I'm saying I don't think it works very well. I think it is very segmented into, like, he brings up this this clear thing, this metaphor that he wants to, to talk about mm-hmm. of double consciousness and applying that to Michael Collins being stuck in this other body. And then we have three issues of robot fights, and then you have one more page where it kind of talks about that in, like, on-its-face literal terms. Yeah. But, like, I, I don't think there's much of a metaphor throughout that actually is, like, working in this space, you know? Okay. Like, if, if someone made that argument, I'm not going to say they're wrong, you know? Like, again, maybe I just missed it. There's a chance I just missed it, right? Like, there's something, you know, something here that I'm just not seeing. Yeah, no, I just I'm think not... there's there's a trend, maybe a growing trend, of, like, of kind of poo-pooing metaphors, you know, in the Marvel Universe. And yeah. of saying, like, that's fine, but it's not, it can't be applied literally, and it's not enough. And, and we've talked about this plenty, too, where it's like, the mutant metaphor can be... A successful metaphor for storytelling um it is still 
making it an exact representation of a real world problem is always a mistake because sure. you're talking about you know people that shoot lasers out of their eyes right like it's yeah, yeah. there's you lose a lot okay and i think with the souls of cyberfolk it's no it's not it's definitely not a perfect metaphor but like you said 75% of the story you're talking about a fantasy world of a ai called mechadoom like you don't have a, to take it too seriously but a great story seriously. can a great story can still have the themes woven throughout in the action and in the sci-fi plot and everything points to one another, right? It is not this like thing where here's the part where we talk about the real world issues. Here's the part where it's just goofy sci-fi fun. These are two separate concerns that yeah. are not like really intertwined. I'm just not seeing the intertwinedness, you know, like it is, it's like very it, segmented. I mean, that's, that's yeah. fair. Like it yeah. is very segmented in its, Oh, this is the action, and then this is the serious quoting part. I Which mean, I think structurally, kind of what say, I had with the, the first one, where I really liked that first issue, where it, like felt like it was talking about. It was more grounded in Michael Collins' experience of like being a, a pacifist, and you know him getting stuck in this body, and then it turned into like four issues of spy games and you know like Terminator action, and kind of lost focus on that stuff. I mean, I think I think um, these issues keep the energy and keep the ball rolling a lot more successfully than oh yeah I, I like the action stuff that that doom fight's tons of fun yeah i just like think the, it, uh, it's very between, i i mean i yeah. think too you know we criticized or i criticized definitely that that origin i think this it, it's having wacky marvel universe fun in a way that a deathlock series needs to to sustain itself in 1991 like this book mm -hmm. it yeah. if it was of substantially more philosophical spiritual meditation on the striving in the souls of black folk i think there might be a, a critical lens that it would be more successful but i think on a you know you do have to consider like mcduffie and cowan's efforts here to sustain a deathlock ongoing um so oh, yeah that yeah, was yeah. a challenge no, I mean, while that's... simultaneously incorporating the the types of information and stories that they wanted to be in there this is this is like holding it to a slightly higher standard too right you know like i i did not I'm not going to hold Avengers Death Trap the Vault <laughs> to the same standard, right? Like, I like, I think this is well, and I a think, more mature I think, honestly, that's the thing we keep. About more. I think that's the thing we keep disagreeing on, where I'm actually a lot more willing to credit and to give a pass to things that do try for that exact reason, which is to say, yeah. Avengers Death Trap the Vault, it does not try. It does not yeah. try at M all. Maybe, maybe. I like the things that do. Is the, yeah, maybe like not uh, not giving it a pass is not exactly what I mean because I I think this is more successful than that because I I do like I really appreciate that you have a Marvel writer who's trying to talk about W. E. Du Bois in here right like I appreciate that but when he does that then that kind of introduces the critiques for me for like wanting to talk about like okay how successful is that like I, I'm always yeah I just to think you're jumping on, into on, you know and I and I think yeah you're jumping yeah, uh, you're jumping straight to unsuccessful as opposed to it's, well, it's impressive that, that it, not, it's impressive not as, on the level it wanted to be in that you know can you hear me still yeah 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 no i just think like there's there's a a work like this asks you to consider it on a level that a lot of marvel comics do not and i yeah. actually respect it a lot for doing that um yeah yeah totally and, and then from there once you establish that base then from there you can say and i'm critical of the execution i don't think it wove that stuff into like seventy percent of the plot, which I think, yeah, I that part of it, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, like maybe not so much. Yeah, I mean, like I, I'm, I, I'm more interested. It, there's always more to talk about and critique in a like a mixed success that 
shoots for the the fences right than something that like plays it safe and is just kind of like bored you know like i have more to say about this than i do i don't know like silver surfer the enslavers Mm-hmm. Right, like I'm critiquing this more than I did Silver Surfer the Enslavers because Silver Surfer the Enslavers is shooting for telling a straight down the middle kind of, you know, not not really interested in much except for some superhero shenanigans. Yeah, you know, six out of ten work. I think this is better than that, but I think it's shooting for more. So I'm, you know, I'm talking. The critiques are more complicated because the the goals of this comic are more complicated. I think, and this so isn't I, I, levied I directly wanna... at you, but I think there's yeah, yeah. a lot of times a work like that, like a Silver Surfer and Slavers, or like a Death Trap, it can get reduced to like, oh, it was fun. Like, what's your, you know, what's your problem? It was fun. Like, I enjoyed it, and then it almost gets an evaluation of like, and therefore it was better than uh, Deathlock, well, which I, is I definitely don't. Yeah, no, I, I know, don't I know you that, don't, but yeah. I'm saying a lot of times that yeah, type yeah. of critical evaluation, it can just be like. It can just be like, oh, yeah, it was just fun. Like, it wasn't trying to do anything else, and I enjoyed it. And then it's like, oh, and it was better because of that. And I'm kind of, at least in this moment, kind of thinking, like, actually, it's not. It's not better just because it played it safe and didn't make you think about anything. (laughs) Like, there's there's value in fun. There's value in delight. And we celebrate those things that do that successfully. Um, But I think there's, there's a lot more to be said about comics that are trying to push this medium that, again, is like, often very juvenile and we talk about it as adults and pretend that it's not super juvenile you know because you yeah, have to yeah, have yeah. a reason to be in your 30s talking about marvel comics so you don't feel like you know like <laughs> you're wasting all this time reading literature for children you know what i yeah, mean yeah, and yeah. i think books that that push on that make me feel better about myself <laughs> for doing that <laughs> okay well no I, I i agree with everything you're saying and and it is there is part of what we're doing which is also wrapped in we're looking at this 30 years after the fact when comics have become a lot more complicated and free you know like editorially freed to start discussing stuff like this uh, with a little bit more leeway right like um it, you know i think the medium has just evolved and grown up so like part of it is judging it by you know like more modern standards which is you know not not fair but also just kind of what we can do and it's also not that interesting to talk about these comics and just constantly be hedging well for the time for the time for the time well and there's a certain all we can all we can do is you know what what we read now yes there's a certain elevation that i give this as well because deathlock the souls of cyberfolk this is a black creative team and Mm, in marvel we don't get that so if i'm reading 1978 even something we like even a rage of the panther and don mcgregor Mm -hmm. ends that with a quote you know, or, so, or some some literature in the past, right? He he references, um, you know, something uh, I don't know. Somebody wrote, right? Some some heavy yep. literary text. Um, that doesn't have the same value in my eyes. It doesn't have the same lived experience that McDuffie and Cowan bring to Deathlock, and that actually makes a significant yeah. difference. So that's I think that's why I'm willing to look at this and say, well, they probably have a lot more to say, and there probably is more sure. of an extended metaphor that is worth parsing out because there's some lived experience. And especially too, when you go and look at what McDuffie and Cowan do from this point forward in founding milestone comics and just being these huge influential voices in, mm-hmm. you know, kind of comics and entertainment black at large. Yeah. And, and yeah, like in black media and black superheroes, like it's, to me, it makes it a lot more credible, I suppose. It's true. I definitely like, I sit forward a little bit more when he starts talking about this stuff than I do when Chris Claremont does. Yeah, now, right. When, when when he's talking about race <laughs> and he's putting words in Misty Knight's mouth, I'm definitely paying attention a little more than I did, you know, back in the, the 80s. And uh, then, you know, I, I can't even remember who wrote Luke Cage at this point, but, 
you know, like, I, I definitely pay attention a little more and think, like, okay, well, you know, maybe, you know, there's something more here and there's something more relevant here. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, largely, I, I, I really like, I, maybe it sounds like I don't, I really like the conversations he has with Misty Knight at the beginning and end of this. I just, like, I wish it was, I'm trying to think of something that's, like, kind of. It, it could have had more of those. It could have had more of those. And actually, I think it would be a little better if it had. I, I not even that. Like, it, I'm, I'm thinking of something like The Matrix, where when you watch that movie, every point of it parts points to the metaphor of the film. Right, like there are these themes running through the film, and all of the the film, the aesthetic, the action, the dialogue, the characters, all like point to this metaphor, and you can really like parse it at that level. While it also just kind of functions as a sci-fi action film, and this is trying to be like a sci-fi <clears throat> action comic and try to talk about bigger stuff. And I just it's that segmentation that I think uh, you know like is is makes it a little less successful than I would hope. But so yeah, it's still it's still very good. Um, sure. I, I don't. I don't want to totally diminish it or anything. All right. Next but, up know, on the list, no Avengers Death Trap the Vault. Okay. So yeah, here's the getting question, to Dave. the graphic novel that we've been referencing <laughs> as a pure example of good fun. All right, Zach. I have my answers ready. I have them prepared. Uh, what are the questions that you are going uh, to ask me? Why'd you do it, Dave? <laughs> That's the question I have. So, so why'd you why'd you do it? Dave? I knew you were going to ask. Uh, Avengers Death Trap the Vault is a Marvel original graphic novel. It was published in September 1991. We have writer Danny Fingeroth, pencils by Ron Lim, who I love, inks by Jim Sanders, and Fred Fredericks, colors by Joe Rosas. This is Marvel Graphic Novel number 68. We don't read a ton of the original Marvel Graphic Novels, and there's pretty good reason. They often are not that good, which is, again, kind of surprising. Um, The good ones really stand out, but in their history of however many there are, you know, the close to 100, uh, they tend to not be great. This is not a massive exception. Um, It is, like I was just saying, as a a reductive criticism that I am increasingly not that into, it's kind of fun. (laughs) Um, The reason I included it was primarily as a punitive measure, Zach, for how many times you complained about interviewing uh, Danny Fingeroth. So I made sure that we could include uh, something oh, written because, by Danny well, Fingeroth to, 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 clarify, to spite that you. Sounds, that sounds super rude. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. Me. No, it was. That, that we didn't. That we haven't read much Danny Fingeroth, and we interviewed him, and I was like. You know, we, ha- we hadn't read much of this guy's work yet. So so here you go. Me- here you go. Yeah. Here's some Danny Fingeroth. It wasn't going to be Darkhawk, which is his longest-running mm-hmm. series, which is um, him on writing, and I think it's uh, Mike Manley on pencils, which a lot of folks, a lot of fans today really like Darkhawk as a character. I read the first few issues, and I like some of the Mike Manley art in the 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 general idea but i was like eh, we're not gonna we're not gonna read a lot of dark hawk it's not happening so this was this was really the one that i had to do and uh yeah we we did interview danny fingeroth about um the stan lee biopic or you know um biography that he's written which is pretty mm-hmm. good yeah and uh and this is it's a solid marvel graphic novel it's fine it's about a, a prison outbreak at the vault it's about venom leading it essentially it's about the avengers going in and trying to stop it um it's not freedom. Freedom Force as well. Freedom Force shows up, which makes it actually <laughs> yeah. just kind of culture or not culturally, um, temporally interesting. And Ron Lim draws the whole thing, and Ron Lim's awesome. So like, it's uh, it's kind of a fun 1991 oddity that not a heck of a lot of people will have read. It goes down smooth. It goes down easy. Yeah. And again, like the Avengers and Freedom Force working together is not something I, I'm just. I, I've said this a bunch, but like, I'm always fascinated by Freedom Force showing up. They're just so weird to me. This government agency of the mutants, Blob and Avalanche and Pyro and like and Mystique and Blob, like 
like blob just being like a like a director like like having like a lot of authority is just bizarre and uh and you get that in full force here so well done danny well done ron well done team avengers death trap the vault a triumph zach what do you have to say? okay well <laughs> yeah it's it's okay <laughs> i would not say a triumph i mean it, it had its its fun which was like the the highest fun i had with, with it was like a uh, rando weird marvel villains like popping out of corners and stuff yeah you know? yeah like that that was that was what i liked like seeing you know i i don't even remember you know what i do like point, a lot just like yeah. actually with this i really like marvel prison outbreaks uh those sure. uh, specifically when it's like oh this is our yeah, power this is our prison for super powered criminals and then they all start breaking out because you do just get that that list of all the villains and it can be a lot of just kind of fun goofy stuff but then also like venom someone you have to take seriously and those types of stories uh kind of always work for me it's also there's a reason you see marvel return to that in like video games when they do do video games occasionally um where it's like everything starts with a a prison outbreak because you could just get the most bang for your buck with like characters Mm -hmm. and you know scene setting and it's it's kind of always uh pretty entertaining so i do dig that yeah, it worked okay. I, I mean, I could see a version of this that, like, flows better in, like, there there is a level of confusion to this where you're like, okay, what is each team doing? What What is their goals? Why are, what is this, like, motivations get lost. It gets a little messy. Um, and then it, it's largely, you know, there's a bomb and everyone needs to stop the bomb. But, yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's fun seeing all these random characters. I like Radiation Man popping in at the end to, you know, like, save everybody and, uh, like, absorb all that radiation somebody's got to do it you know what's you know what's more fun and honestly quite excellent marvel superheroes number eight oh yeah it rules and it's steve ditko steve so all right now (laughs) sorry writer jump ahead steve ditko penciler steve ditko inks steve ditko i think you have like co-writing here maybe with will murray and colors by christy shiel uh steve ditko creator of squirrel girl Okay, and that's where this happens. <laughs> I had no in, idea. You didn't know. No it was, you didn't know it was a Ditko joint. That's I had, funny. I had no idea, and he's what he's been gone for thirty years almost. You know, not quite, but like twenty five. Twenty five. From years, what do you like mean that. he's been gone? <laughs> he's just he's just he's, very reclusive. <laughs> he's no, alive he during this for, stretch was, of time. He was dead for twenty years, and he, he came back. Came back to do Squirrel Girl. Squirrel Girl. I mean, he yeah. had introduced uh, Speedball prior to this um he he shows up occasionally in these little one-offs but yeah i mean in general he's not super interested in playing with marvel um you know he's doing his own thing he does obviously he you know creates question and uh he has mr a which is his super and reindian you know uh, objectivist comic which is bizarre but uh this is this is so funny this comic book is hilarious, and like I thought I had read it, maybe I had. Mm-hmm. I do not remember it being this funny. I I think part of it is so Squirrel Girl in 2021 is actually quite beloved because creators Ryan North, Erica Henderson, um, others uh, have have stepped in and made her character, made that book like a smash hit, like a like a huge success yeah. in the yeah, Marvel yeah. Comics line. And to the point where now it's like, yeah, she's going to get introduced in the MCU at, point, at some point. Like, it's going to be a thing. It's going to be fun. And prior to that, it was just a total joke. Just a total joke. It was just, like, pure gag comedy. Some creators tried to, like, like Brian Michael Bendis, for example, in the 2000s, like, tried to, like, take her not only seriously, but also, like, really sexualize her in a way that Wasn't doesn't she work. she, like, yeah, trying to be a big part of Civil War or something? Uh, Doesn't she play some, I would some, not like, call weird... her a big part. <laughs> or isn't she playing some like actual like integral role in 
Uh, she beats up Deadpool during Civil War. No, pretty sure that's my memory. But um, but this this introduction, I think part of it because of what I know that what I know Doreen Green, which is her her real name, to be now uh part of because I know that comedy and that angle to it. Maybe I read it with a different lens. But I was I could not believe how much I loved this, how much I was smiling and like literally laughing at some of just the and I don't know either how much the creators are in on the joke. At all times, I don't know. You, you kind of, yeah, you kind of think they must be right because just like Iron Man just swimming with squirrels is <laughs> such a like comedic image. They know it's goofy. Uh, it, they definitely know they're being goofy. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But yeah, you're you're not sure how finely tuned the comedy is, or if some of it is unintentional. Yeah, because I, I expected this to be like pretty straight, like down the middle, like like very straight faced, right? Yeah, right. I did not expect it to be like, hi, I'm Squirrel Girl. Like, I want to be your sidekick. Look at my little weird... This is my weird tooth that I used to chew through wood. When she shows Iron Man her knuckle claw, and it's just flipping (laughs) daggers coming out of her fist, and she carves (laughs) their names into a tree, and this manic, insane look of glee on her face. It's it's so funny. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's really funny. Like, the whole thing flows really well. Like, it, it goes down so easy, and... And like, just like her, her positivity fun. and charm is just off the charts. Like, like all she wants to do, all Doreen wants to do is she wants to be Iron Man psychic. Okay, so she yeah. wants to like she has these squirrel based abilities. Um, she meets up with Iron Man. She really wants to be his sidekick. And then basically the way the story goes, and probably what you're familiar with if you're familiar with anything and you haven't read it before, is Doctor Doom shows up, and then this is the story where Squirrel Girl defeats Doctor Doom. And like that yeah. is mostly what this has been relegated to. In the the you know in history, just being like, hey, remember that time Doctor Doom lost to Squirrel Girl? Ha ha ha! But it's like the the way it plays out before that point is so charming. I I just I was really blown away by like, well, like it, really enjoying this. It gets at something I don't know if we've ever literally seen in Marvel so far, which is the hero who just loves being a hero. I guess She Hulk has a little of that, right? Yeah, uh-huh. but like even her, she goes through like a lot of stress and stuff in Fantastic Four. You know, like. It, it, it just leans into that thing, which I think a lot of people say they would like to see more from superhero movies and stuff, which is just like, you know what? Like, it's, it's got to be fun. Right? It's got to be fun to have these superpowers. And it's not this, like, doom and gloom dourness all the time. Yeah. And, like, so rarely do we see, like, someone who's just like, yeah, <laughs> I can talk to squirrels. I can climb trees. I move super fast. I love it. Like, let me be your sidekick. Like, mm-hmm. someone who's just ecstatic to be a superhero. Yeah. And not just, like this responsibility is weighing me down right which is more the norm right and i mean doreen does she starts displaying a little bit of that emotion kind of towards the end we get here that she's actually a mutant and that her abilities like she has to she like she has to hide her giant squirrel tail like that is a part of her and like Mm -hmm. it's hard to fit in with the other kids you know so you kind of get some of that peter parker-ishness to her um but also mixed in with the fact that you know here at this point she's identified as a mutant but also she walks up spider iron man says hey i can talk squirrel and starts going <laughs> right in his face, which is incredible. Oh my gosh, it's so good. And then six a bunch of squirrels on Doctor Doom, who you know Doctor Doom is defeated by just some squirrels. Right, and like uh-huh. Steve Ditko doesn't quite know how to draw a squirrel, which is one of the funnier parts. I also love how Steve Ditko just immediately reverts to like '60s Iron Man. Oh, totally, like, totally. There's nothing right modern about to, like, this. Yeah, it's it's straight like 1965 Iron Man. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah, he does that. Um, yeah, is this Steve Ditko's and... best creation? <laughs> We have. It's to. definitely his. Did he create Doctor Strange, or was that just something he got put on? No, he gets after? he gets co-creation for Doctor Strange did and he Spidey. Okay. He should. Yeah, I don't know. I 
I mean, it's definitely Spider-Man number one, but like Doctor Strange or Squirrel Girl, I haven't read enough. Squirrel at Girl, this point, so I can't say. at this point, yeah. you would find a surprising number of fans who would say Squirrel Girl over Doctor Strange. And oh, sure. Yeah. I'm. I mean, here's the thing. I've never read 50 issues of Doctor Strange that I really dug. Never. Yeah. Right. Ma- yeah, yeah. Maybe there's, there's no, because the the original Lee and Ditko stuff doesn't go that long. You yeah. know, so Even I would say Squirrel Girl fun, has a better like, long run than Doctor Strange. Sure, yeah, I believe it. I, I'm fired, so excited to get that Strange run. Heads. I've been like, I've been holding back on reading. I've read <clears throat> issues here and there, but I have not. Uh, not it's gone actually too deep of a dive on that. Squirrel Girl is actually a very difficult read in some ways because it's every issue has a lot of meat on the bone, and because North utilizes all these you know jokes like at the at the gutters on the bottom mm-hmm. of every page, yeah, I've, they actually just yeah, take yeah, a lot yeah. longer to read. So it's one of those yeah. things where you're like, I'm going to sit down and read 50 issues. That's going to take a long time. It doesn't work yeah. the same way as some some other more modern uh, Marvel hmm. stuff, you know? Yeah, interesting. But in some ways, yeah, I mean, that's stuff. you know, it's part of the charm. But it's, you know, this this comic is Johannes. You nailed it. This is the best comic. Yeah, thank that you. Any patron thank has added. Um, honestly, <laughs> the gauntlet just, is thrown down for for future patrons. Actually, our next Patreon backer in 1992 uh, is uh, Johannes adding more stuff. Yeah, he, uh, he's adding Warlock and the Infinity Watch, uh, and then and Dustin's adding more Excalibur as he is wont to do. Um, but yeah, we don't have anything else besides that in 92. So if it, there's any 1992 comics that you think can one up this that we don't have on our list, yeah, yeah, yeah. I also I also have a shout out here too. I I always thought North and, and Henderson and whatnot made up. I don't need luck. I eat nuts. That's right here, right here in the <laughs> yeah, source know, material. That, it's the that, best oh, I'm glad sign you off. Brought that up. Is that is that a big is that a like famous line from their run? I think they reference it. I, I think they reference this yeah. more heavily than that I ever line guessed. is incredible. Yeah, <laughs> I don't need like I eat nuts. Yeah, when when she's trapped with Iron Man, uh, and he's like tied up in a prison cell, you know, with like energy bolts. Yeah, and she's like, here, I'm here to help. And he's like, how? And he's just she's like, I've got macadamia nuts. I've got pistachio. <laughs> like she starts listing up the nuts she has. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, well done, so Steve. Yeah. Well done, uh, co-creation team. Marvel Superheroes number eight. Well worth reading. All right, that's going to do it for yep. 1991. We finished the year, and we finished yeah. it on a positive Squirrel Girl note. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Next up, 1992, part one. Uh, I don't know. I don't have it in front of me, but it's going to be something probably just like it's Avengers Galactic Storm. and hard to get through. Little, <laughs> can you give me a little context for this? There's a lot here. Uh, Avengers Galactic There's Storm a is a giant Avengers crossover that'll start the year for us in 1992. And in Vishal's words, when we talked about the Avengers, we did in our little uh, Avengers special. It is bad for 23 issues, and then it's good for one. <laughs> what the? We're reading 21 issues. So we're going to read the whole thing. That's we have right. 21 issues. I just counted. And they're all serious. Well, there's some Captain America. But I like that. There's Amer- Avengers West Coast. It's still John Byrne. I'm okay with that. But then there's a lot of I'm Quasar. sure we don't need there's to read all of it. There. I also don't want to do the work to curate and edit it. So there you go. We're reading Avengers okay. Galactic Storm. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, it's it's your, your send-off for paternity leave, as you can... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the last thing you read, I think, before you, you head off for your paternity leave. Sounds amazing. All right, yep. so that's coming up next. Uh, again, you can find all the issues that we're reading next. You can find them in the show notes. Um, you, and you can support the site over at patreon.com slash here if you want access to the guide yourself. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com. He's Zach. You can find him online at mymarvelousyear. Uh, and yeah, please consider rating and reviewing the show if you enjoy it. Music for My Marvelous Year is by Disaster Peace. Otherwise... I think that does it for us. 
Yep, sounds good. All right, thanks everybody for listening, and as always, we will see you next year. See you next year.